Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This week, my guest is Matt Pence. He's the author of the new book on the Seattle Sounders and covers the team for The Athletic. We'll also get into how we met each other for the first time in, of all places, Ukraine. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Our guest today is Matt Pence. He writes for The Athletic, covering the Seattle Sounders, and he's also the author of the terrific new book, The Sound and the Glory, How the Seattle Sounders Showed Major League Soccer How to Win Over America. Matt, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Congratulations on your book, which I really enjoyed reading. And I'm wondering, how did the idea to do the book come about, and what did you set out to do? And thank you for that, first of all. It's very much appreciated. Um, but yeah, so the genesis of the idea came, um, I covered the 2016 season uh, for the Seattle Times. And that Sounders year just had so many narratives. It was kind of the the perfect sports dramatic arc. Um, they had parted ways with their longtime coach, Ziggy Schmid. Um, general manager Garth Lagerway had come in, and there's a little bit of a power struggle they had iconic players coming in and out, um, sort of all of these different personality clashes. They started out so slowly and sort of made this insanely dramatic run to the championship. So just from a narrative aspect, there was so much there um, that I knew that it, that it probably could work out into a book. And then sort of after that season happened, um, I had actually gotten laid off by the Times, um, which was a little bit unfortunate um, in one sense, but in another sense, it turned out to be a mixed blessing because the biggest issue I had had in not going forward with the book right away um, as soon as the season ended was that I didn't think I had the time um, as a full-time beat reporter to be able to do this on the side and be able to have it all come together. Um, and all of a sudden, I had a lot of time. Uh, so... So I kind of use that um, as sort of the jumping off point to, you know what, let, let me try this. Let me see if I can do it. Um, I've always been a big reader. Um, so the appeal of a book was very strong. So that was sort of the, the origin story. Um, and it all kind of kicked off from there. Well, I want to congratulate you, too, for dealing with uh, what I thought was a pretty crazy decision. Uh, you did a tremendous job for the Seattle Times. Uh, I'm glad you're covering the team again for The Athletic. Uh, but to decide I'm going to go ahead and write a book is uh, a pretty bold decision. And it's not an easy thing to do to write a book. Uh, you spent a lot of time with the late Ziggy Schmid for this book. 
What did you learn about him and sort of his role building the Sounders? Yeah, I, I cannot speak highly enough, um, first of all, for the input that Ziggy had and, and sort of the the time that he gave me. Um, probably besides whenever I was still sort of having doubts as to whether I could even pull this off, um, he allowed, allowed me to come down to L.A. Um, and sort of hang out with him in Manhattan Beach for two or three days. Um and just kind of pick his brain. And, and without that sort of long weekend um, in the time that he generously gave me, um, I don't think that this would have ever come together in the way that it did. So I, I can't thank him enough um, for his influence on all of this. And and yeah, it, and I think it, it can kind of be lost um, with as successful as the Sounders have been since he left as to how important he was in those early years. Um, a lot of the Sounders sort of front office at that time we're kind of all flying blind. A lot of guys that didn't have a lot of experience in MLS and they really trusted him to have the team hit the ground running. Uh, and I think people also forget how sort of how tenuous the state of MLS was in 2009. Um, you look at the crowds in all these different markets now and it can kind of feel like it was always like that. Um, but the Sounders really were the first team that really pushed that envelope and were drawing third. 30,000 instead of 15 and they pushed that even over 40 and I don't think any of that would have happened if they hadn't started as successfully as they did to kind of let Seattle know that they were a big deal this wasn't just a minor league team in this second rate league like they really were gonna take everything seriously and that started with the hiring of Ziggy Schmid uh, and his really influence on this team and really his influence on the thesis of this book, which is the blueprint that Seattle provided for the rest of MLS, that blueprint came a lot from Ziggy Schmidt himself. So I remember 2009, I remember Seattle starting play and, and not only being better than expected on the field, but drawing these big crowds. Uh, and as you say, they, the Sounders really were the first MLS team to draw major league-sized crowds week in and week out. What were the factors that caused Seattle to be able to do that? Yeah, they, they first of all, they came into Seattle at a really fortuitous time um, whenever the sports market here was in kind of a low place. Um, the Sonics had left for Oklahoma City, um, and that's really still sort of leaving a hole in the sort of sports culture here even now. Um, the Washington Huskies football team, which is traditionally really popular out here, went 0-12 the previous year. The Seahawks were 4-12, and 12, um, sort of before. This was the pre-Pete Carroll era. The Mariners were the first team to spend more than $100 million and lose 100 games. So it was sort of a, a really low ebb in Seattle sports history that the Sounders were really able to come in and fill that vacuum uh, with a winner because the city was just really looking out for a team that it could get behind, and they were able to do that. So sort of the on-field success um, was really the first part of that. But off the field, I think their partnership with the Seahawks was a really big deal. Um, they sort of partnered business ops in everything from marketing to ticket sales to in-game promotions, they sort of got that expertise and it gave them a sense of professionalism um, that just maybe was lacking around MLS at that time. So I think that was a really big deal. Um, and Seattle, just it has a really good history of soccer here. If you look at some of the players that have come out um, in the modern era with Jordan Morris and DeAndre Yedlin being the obvious ones, there's just a really strong youth soccer culture here dating back to the NASL 
in sort of that that era that was maybe more successful here than it was other places. Uh, and lastly, they sort of they honed in on a target market that turned out to be really fruitful instead of really at the turn of the last decade, it still was kind of MLS is kind of targeting the families out in the suburbs, mm-hmm. um, sort of the soccer mom idea where you bring the whole family out to a game. Whereas the Sounders were also one of the first teams to kind of identify that they really wanted to get the sort of urban millennials that are living downtown, looking for something new and hip and cool. Um, and the Sounders really hit on that target market. And I think that almost every successful team since has borrowed from at least some of that. But for the Sounders specifically, it was kind of this perfect storm of all of those different factors coming together and leading to this great success. Now, Seattle majority owner Adrian Hanauer maybe isn't the most vocal of MLS owners, but he has been very ambitious about what he's done with his club. Uh, Joe Roth was originally the majority owner, no longer is. Uh, What stands out to you about Hanauer's approach? I think his sort of just raw passion for the game um, is definitely something that comes across. I mean, I, I referenced the NASL Sounders, and he was sort of one of those boyhood fans that really fell for the game way back in the 70s. Um, and I think that longevity has sort of fed into how he sees the team and how it fits into this culture. Um, I think he's also very down-to-earth um, when it comes to the hierarchy of owners. Um, he just kind of – he doesn't really come across as being as, I don't know, above the fray mm-hmm. as a lot of different owners seem to be. So I think that he's pretty good at, at connecting with people. I think that he commands a lot of loyalty um, from everybody around the staff. I know that even – having had to make that tough decision with Ziggy Schmidt in 2016, I know that they ended up getting back on good terms just because they respected each other so much. And I think that that's kind of a hand hour staple in that he has a way of connecting people um, that I think really serves the team well um, when it comes to business ops to everything else. Another guy who gave you a lot of time for this book is Garth Lagerway, the Sounders president of soccer. You mentioned him earlier if you were going to describe Lagerway's strategy to building a team, what would it be? Uh, from the ground up, which is probably a little bit weird given that the Sounders are traditionally one of the biggest spending teams in MLS. But I think what's different about Lagerway's approach is that he's really invested in youth development. And I think that that's sort of the next wave of sort of Sounders guys you're going to see over the next couple of years or guys that they've developed in-house because they pretty much didn't have much of a pipeline at all whenever he came in um, in early 2015. And he sort of constructed that from the ground up. And so it allows them to sort of bring in talent from a couple different areas rather than just spending on it. Um, He's also very meticulous when it comes to the big signings. um, And that has sort of drawn some fans' ire um, at different times. And you can even sort of I get into in the book a little bit that maybe he wasn't as popular as maybe he should have been um, given the success that he's helped create here. Um, But fans are always impatient. He is certainly a very, very patient man. Um, But he's sort of gotten it right when you look at his big signings from uh, Nicholas Lodero to Raul Rui Diaz. He really takes his time and he's a very meticulous thinker. Um, And that can maybe get him into trouble sometimes. But overall, I think it's a a big positive for the franchise. You know, 
Garth Lagerway to me has always been one of the more fascinating characters in MLS. I covered him when he was a goalkeeper in MLS in the 90s. And I always knew he was a smart guy. He went to Duke. But he always kind of had this vibe of kind of a flaky guy uh, as a player. And so he wasn't the first person I would have thought who would have become sort of, as I, I think I called him at one point, the, the Theo Epstein of, of MLS. I mean, he went to Salt Lake and became uh, a very successful general manager there, won a title, uh, goes to Seattle, wins a title there. Um, like, it's a completely different vibe of, of Garth, I think, than I had of him as a player. I'm wondering what your sense is of all that. Yeah, he used to have those great dreadlocks. Uh, <laughs> for the first time I ever saw a video of him as a player, I'm like, wait, what? Uh, I had no idea. So I have kind of come at it from the opposite end, uh, that I've only really gotten to know him now as this polished exec. Uh, so I look back at those old clips and I hear about the stories of him as a player. It, it is very revealing um, in its own way. I think that in talking to him that um, his experience in going to law school at Georgetown was, was really formative. Um, he sort of describes it as maybe coming of age a little bit later than some people do, but I think that um, that was really a formative thing in terms of shifting his thinking and really taking a hard look um, at what he wanted to do as a second career. And I think that in some ways it should probably be inspirational um, to a lot of these major league soccer players who even now not a lot of them are making enough money uh, to kind of go and, and live off of it for the rest of their lives, like maybe some athletes can in other sports. So they really do have to think creatively um, about their sort of second act. And, and I believe Garth, he, he tried out a lot of different roles. I think he even wrote for Sports Illustrated. He um, did a couple indeed. Times. I believe that he did. He wrote a couple columns um, <laughs> in the early 2000s, right after he retired. Um, so he tried out a, a lot of different hats. Um, and he got into law school, and it sounds like he really took off from there. But I think it's sort of an inspirational story about somebody willing to adapt and try out all these different things before they finally find that one thing that truly suits them. Yeah, Garth actually uh, first started appearing. I had a weekly column on uh, American soccer and MLS in the early 2000s, and he was so good in this weekly survey that I would send out uh, with a survey question on some interesting topic to MLS players around the league that I, I started including a Garth Lagerway quote of the week with his response in my column. And people liked it so much that when I went on vacation, he would like fill in for me and, and write the column. And um, he was pretty good at it, actually. So I always like to say I gave Garth his start, even though we both know that's not the case. But... In any case, uh, a very interesting figure in American soccer and, and obviously with the Sounders. I'm wondering what kind of a relationship does Lagerway have with the coach, Brian Schmetzer? How do they work together? I think that they complement each other well. Um, I think that Brian's a very sort of hands-on players coach type guy um, who sort of builds deep bonds with his players. Um, and I think that he does that particularly well. I think that that's his biggest strength as a coach is his ability to relate to people on that level. Um, Garth sort of prides himself on, on staying a step back and being able to sort of analytically uh, um, look at it and look at things in the context of a three and five year plan. Um, and he sort of describes the 
the GM role and the coach role is just these inherently different, sometimes confrontational roles um, when it comes to how they look at a roster. Um, I think that him and Schmetzer have a very good working relationship. Um, I don't know that either one of them, or especially Lagerway, uh, sort of expected Schmetzer uh, to win the head coaching role full time, which is kind of one of the central tensions of the book. Um, with Schmetzer being this beloved local longtime assistant who was really given a, a stacked hand um, in trying to win this job. And he went on and, and really forced the Sounders to keep him around full time. And I don't know if Loggerway would, would admit this on or off the record that maybe that wouldn't have been his, his first choice at the time. Um, but in the years since, I, I get the sense that they work together very well. Now, it's unusual to see, but the Sounders have gotten off to a great start for once with four wins and a tie in their first five games of the league season. What's going on there? What have the main storylines been out there so far this season? Yeah, I know that Loggerway has kind of talked with some exasperation in the past about the narrative that they always started slow because the way that he told it was that, well, if you go to back-to-back champions, championship games and you have no rest in a very short offseason you're typically going to start slow um and his line was that yeah i think that i I would never trade off um losing in the second round of the playoffs um and then being able to start fast because we have extra rest but that's kind of what ended up happening um because the sounders were knocked out in the conference semis by rival portland in this great series last year um and i think that they do sort of look at that as an opportunity miss, but I do think that the team was sort of badly in need of an extra month off. Uh, you could sort of see that fatigue. So I think that that's made a big difference. They also just sort of decided that this team is ready to win right now. Um, they really just sort of stuck with their roster from last year, allowed everybody to gel. Um, and I think that that's definitely play, paid off, that continuity. You can just kind of see that they're just way ahead of the curve in their chemistry and the way that guys play off of each other and their overall understanding. Um, having Jordan Morris back from injury has also made a big difference. Uh, Morris had been out for practically 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. national team forward having hurt his hamstring at the end of 2017 and then hurt his knee in the very first game of 2018. Um, he'd been out for a really long time, and I don't think anybody expected him expected him to be quite this good quite this soon because he's really hit the ground running um been a difference maker not only in seattle but he's kind of forced his way back into the national team picture as well so you add him in to what was already a pretty proven core um and you kind of get this four oh and one start that they're on is there a feeling that if the team gets off to a good start like this, that a supporter shield run is a lot more attainable and maybe with the differences in the playoff system this year, even more important? Yeah, I think that uh, that was definitely a point of emphasis um, within the organization, not only just sort of correcting this narrative that they started slow all the time. There had been some fan grumbling about why should I buy tickets in March if the team isn't going to show up until July, <laughs> uh, which was probably fair. Uh, so I think that just sort of up and down, um, they sort of recognized that they really needed to get hot right away. Um, and they have in, in the sort of what you're saying, too, that for the Shield, it could definitely be in play for this team, I think. I think that they're talented enough. Um, I think that they're deep enough to really make a run at a regular season title. 
I actually think an even bigger deal in the long run um, is sort of the one thing that the Sounders have yet to obtain in MLS, sort of that last little holy grail for them, is hosting MLS Cup at CenturyLink Field. They've made it to two championship games, but they were on the road both times in Toronto. I think that having MLS Cup in Seattle in front of tens of thousands of people packing that stadium would really be that next step in the team's evolution in terms of winning over more and more local fans and everything else. I think that that's certainly in the back of their minds, too, that getting as high a seed as possible and maybe having that be the end game, I think that that's a pretty big motivator for them as well. Now, Seattle's home attendances lately have been more in the high 30,000s than in the 40,000s. Is there anything to be concerned about in that regard? And, and what is the feeling there about what has happened in Atlanta with soccer in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think that that's sort of the, the really good next question um, for where this team goes. If I were to go and, and write another Sounders book five years down the road, I think that this would sort of be the general, sort of the next big theme when it comes to them is how do they sort of take that next step to compete with Atlanta who's getting I mean upper 60s sometimes and it seems and they've really invested in their team they started slow this year but that team last year was up there with probably the most talented in MLS history and for all the Sounders success um, they certainly had never reached those type of heights and I think the MLS has just changed if the Sounders have really driven the league forward and made it what it is today, if you take a hard look at where they're at financially, um, their training facility really pales in comparison to what Atlanta has, what even Kansas City has, what LAFC has. Um, they just, they've fallen a little bit behind, in my opinion, in sort of not only their willingness, but their ability to spend with some of these teams. I mean, Arthur Blank um, in Atlanta pretty much has a blank checkbook to be able to sort of fill out and invest wherever he wants. And the Sounders don't have quite that level of investment to be able to put out there. So how they compensate for that, how they are able to sort of keep the local excitement going whenever their brand for so long was them being this leading innovator in MLS. Um, how do they adapt if that starts to change? How does that impact attendance? And they've been on the record saying they want to sell out CenturyLink Field um, by 2026 with 67,000 fans per game. Um, and to get there, I think that they're going to have to really take a hard look at their strategies and maybe be willing to go above and beyond and, and add maybe even a new higher profile designated player to get that excitement going again. I'm wondering, do you expect to see any major changes with the Sounders in the years to come? I don't, but I do. Con I, I think that they'll continue to sort of adapt and change their focus in some ways. I think that what's already changed with them is I think that they have sort of accepted on some level that they're not going to be able to spend with everybody in MLS anymore. And whether the, the fans here have accepted that or sort of understand that new reality or not, um, I think that they're going to lean even more in that direction. Um, sort of what I got into earlier with Loggerway bringing in all these youth development guys to sort of filter in talent from below. I think that they're going to be way more homegrown oriented. I think they'll still be willing to spend here and there on bigger impact players, but I do expect them 
to be a little bit more modestly run uh, when you look at their payroll as it stacks up to the rest of the league. Now, before I forget, I want to actually remind uh, myself, the first time I met you was in Ukraine, correct? That is correct. It's Euro 2012, <laughs> somewhere outside. Yeah. What were, what were you doing over there again? I'm trying to remember. Yes, yeah, so I just graduated college, um, and I had taken a foreign correspondence class and somehow won a grant to just go and work abroad, essentially where I wanted to for three months. Um, and I somehow got a role with an English-speaking newspaper in Kiev <laughs> uh, while Euro 2012 was going on. Um, it, it was actually kind of wild. The, the editor-in-chief there um, was a former Associated Press guy from Austin okay. who just ended up in Ukraine somehow. And they hadn't had any sports coverage at all traditionally. Um, so I pretty much just pitched them on, well, you're hosting this major tournament. Can I come and write about it for two or three months? And that's kind of how it went. It, it was a great experience. Um, I could not speak highly enough about the newspaper there, uh, my time in Ukraine covering that tournament. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of wild that that's where we first touched base. <laughs> I think I remember meeting you right around the final because I didn't get over there until the final few days. I'd been in Poland the rest of Euro 2012. But uh, definitely stuck out that, uh, that you were over there and it's been neat to, to follow your path since then. Um, how would you describe this whole process of, of writing your first book? Uh, yeah, and just to go back to that real quick, I do remember us meeting. It was in some random like hotel ballroom <laughs> on the river in some random Ukrainian hotel, if I remember correctly. And I, I do want to say that I appreciate it then, and I maybe even appreciate it more now, um, having gone a little bit more forward in my career, that at that time, I mean, for you to take the time out to meet with this recent college graduate who really had no idea what he was doing in Ukraine, uh, I always did. Very much appreciate that. Uh, and, and now, every once in a while now, I, I still have a way to go, but I get emails every once in a while now asking for career advice. And I make sure that I respond back to everybody in part because you had kind of done that for me back then. So it, it's definitely meant a lot for sure. And it's definitely, it seems like a lot has happened in the last six or seven years. A lot has. I mean, like it's, uh, my memories of uh, Kiev were, it was fun to cover the final uh, I was doing stuff for Fox and for Sports Illustrated. Uh, it was nice to meet you. And if I recall correctly, the place where we met in Kiev fit the sort of general description I had of everything, just about everything there, which was vaguely sinister, uh, which maybe is a little harsh because you were there much longer than I was. Maybe it wasn't vaguely sinister everywhere, but uh, still good memories. Um, so, yeah, as far as like uh, writing the book itself, um, it's uh, – it's a pretty big thing to to face and to accomplish. Uh, what was it like? Yeah, I, I people always ask like what was sort of the toughest part, and I think that um, the first month for sure. Um, so I ended up how you typically go and sell books for people that that are sort of looking into maybe doing that somewhere down the line is you write a sample chapter um, as well as an outline on sort of what you want to do with the project, and you sort of have to workshop that and make sure it's really good to go. Um, and that actually came relatively smoothly for me. I rewrote it a couple times, but uh, it ended up being the first chapter sort of introducing all these main characters. And for whatever reason, I wrote that pretty smoothly. 
um, had an outline to and, and ended up getting the project picked up. So I got that sold and the publisher comes back. Um, my publisher is ECW Press out of Toronto. Um, finally sit down at the end of August and they're like, well, you have until middle of January. Good luck. Here you go. I'm like, all right, this is going to be no problem at all. The sample chapter was fine. I'll just sit down, write for a couple hours every day. It'll be fine. But that first month um, after I got the book deal, I had the worst writer's block of my entire life. Uh, like I would just write stuff, hate it, go back the next day, trash everything, erase it all. Because it's just a different style of writing. Mm -hmm. um, writing narratively and sort of developing these characters over these long sort of chapters and how they all interact. And it was just a very different style um, from what I was doing in newspaper writing. So I think that it took me a full month of just having to write and then trash my drafts and write again before I could finally find that voice and sort of be able to write narratively and write with scene and all that different stuff that you have to do. Um, so once I got over that hump, um, it wasn't too bad. I did, I think like most writers, you sort of push it all the way to the deadline. Uh, I actually ended up, I took the Coastal Star Starlight Amtrak train from Seattle to San Francisco and back and just wrote for the final like five days to get it over the line. Uh, so it was, yeah, there were definitely some interesting parts and some parts where I very much doubted my own ability. Um, but in the end, I'm definitely glad that I did it. Well, I'm glad you got there. It's a good read. Uh, the book is called The Sound and the Glory, How the Seattle Sounders Showed Major League Soccer How to Win Over America. The writer is Matt Pence. He writes for The Athletic, also covering the Seattle Sounders. Matt, congratulations. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Matt Pence as well as producer Brandon Nix and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. See you next time.